The reading is taken from John chapter 19, verse 41 to chapter 20, verse 18. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Madeline went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He saw the stripes of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Madeline went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now it's time for the sermon. Have your hearts ready to receive what God is going to speak through Bex, who is our associate pastor. Hi, church family. It's so exciting to be able to share with you this Easter Sunday, and we've got a lot to celebrate. This morning, I'm going to be talking to you about ID cards and gardens and the resurrection. So firstly, let's talk about ID cards. You might have noticed over the last few weeks, a lot of appreciation for our NHS. Now, my husband actually works in the NHS. He's a GP. And I think maybe three weeks ago, we started getting loads of messages from friends and family. Oh, does Tim know that he can get free coffee at Pret? He can get 50% off Nando's. And we started getting excited. And then bit by bit, those places actually closed down and we couldn't really use those discounts. If you are a key worker, so if you work in social care, if you work in getting food to the rest of us, if you work in the NHS, then you've been able to send your kids to school, even when everyone else hasn't been able to. And every Thursday at eight o'clock, we all open our doors and we clap for our lovely NHS. Now, if I could find a cafe that was still open, and if I wanted to go in and try and claim an NHS discount, I want you to imagine what would happen if I walked in and said, hi, I work for the NHS, can I have some free coffee? They'd probably ask me to prove it. 
and I wouldn't be able to because I don't actually work for the NHS. But my husband would be able to. He's got a bit of NHS ID. So he'd be able to prove that he did indeed work for the NHS and he'd be able to access all of these amazing ways that our nation is rallying around to support our health service. Now, Jesus made some very bold claims about his identity. Not only his identity, but also about what he had come, what he was able to do and what he'd been sent to do for the world. He said that God had sent him because of God's love for the world to save the world. Now, some people might tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. And I suppose being charitable, it's true that Jesus never said, I am God. Many years ago now, when I was at school, we had a visit from the Queen, which, as you can imagine, was a very special day because we do love the Queen. And they planned it months in advance uh, and they started telling us all the Queen's going to be coming, you know, let's get all your best work on the walls. And I think three or four days before the Queen was due to arrive, they suspended all the really naughty kids so that, you know, there wouldn't be any risk of outbreaks. Uh, But I was allowed to be in school. I wasn't that naughty. So the amazing day came when the Queen was due to come to our school. And these special cars pulled up outside the school. I think there were some police cars and then some unmarked cars, some kind of car that the Queen herself was in. And bit by bit, she came round and visited all the different little areas that we had set up for her. So I was outside in the school garden with a tent because I was part of the Duke of Edinburgh Award presentation to the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. Now, I didn't actually get to speak to the Queen, which I'm not so upset about at all, I promise. But she did talk to some of my friends and I saw her go past and recognised her and that was all very nice. Now, when the Queen came and visited my school, at no point in her visit did she say, I am the Queen. Like, not once. She didn't say it to anyone. We knew who she was. We were expecting her to come. We'd been told that she was coming. We knew what she'd be like when she came. She came in the way that we'd been told she would come with the right cars and the right people in tow. She didn't need to tell us, I am the queen. We knew she was the queen. She came the way she was supposed to come and she did the things that the queen does. So we knew that she was the queen. And in the same way, Jesus claimed to be God through the things that he did and the things that he said, because he did things that only God could do. And he said things about himself that were said about God in the Holy Scriptures. I could give you so many examples, but just a couple spring to mind. So I'm going to read now from Mark 2. And this is a story of some men who brought their friend to Jesus. He was paralysed. And he needed to be healed from his paralysis. That was a very obvious need that the man had. But Jesus saw another need that this man had. So he did heal him. But before he did that, he said to him, your sins are forgiven. And people were really offended, especially religious experts. And I want you to listen carefully to what they said. So this is in Mark 2, verses 5 and 6. So when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins 
but God alone. And that's just one of many times that Jesus did things that only God was supposed to be able to do. And in doing that, he was making a claim and he was showing something about his identity. I want to give you another example of the way that Jesus showed that he was God. Jesus fulfilled many of the prophecies and many of the things that had been said to God Jesus then claimed those things about himself. So we had last Sunday, we celebrated Palm Sunday. And it's a day when we celebrate the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, in fact, fulfilling other prophecies. And he came into Jerusalem and everyone was really excited. Hosanna, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. And then within a few days, they turned and he was crucified. But one of the things that really jumped out at me last Sunday, and I've never really noticed this before, but this is really interesting. So he's ridden into the city, everyone's really excited, and then he actually goes to the temple and cleans out the temple from all the stuff that's going on there that is just not honouring to God. And, uh, and then it says this, and again, we've got those lovely teachers of the law. It says this, this is in Matthew 21, verse 15 onwards. When the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what those children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? Now, that saying that Jesus said at the end there, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. That actually comes from Psalms. So I'm gonna to turn to Psalm eight, which is a Psalm all about how amazing God is. I'm just gonna read you the first couple of verses, see if anything stands out as familiar. Verses one and two of Psalm eight. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children, and infants, you have ordained praise. So that psalm had been written in worship to God. And when the children were crying out and praising Jesus, his response to the people that were questioning that was to quote this psalm of praise to God. And that is one of so many examples of Jesus doing that, of Jesus taking things that had been said to or about God and applying them to himself. So Jesus was claiming something very significant and something which, if he was wrong, was blasphemous. He was claiming to be God. And he also claimed to be the Messiah of God, to be the chosen one sent to deliver the people. Now, the thing that you need to know is that many others had claimed to be the Messiah. And actually, people still do that today. So the Bible actually gives us a couple of examples of that. If you want to turn with me to the book of Acts, and I'm in Acts 5 now. And we read this in verses 36 and 37. Some time ago, Thaudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. I read about an example of another false messiah who came a few decades or centuries, in fact, after that, a guy called Moses of Crete. 
And the reason that he was called Moses is because he claimed that like Moses, he would lead his people. So there were lots of Jews in Crete at the time. And he claimed that he would lead them through the sea back to the promised land. It's actually a very sad story because lots of them threw themselves off a cliff with this guy uh, because they believed that God would part the waters of the sea. And he wasn't Moses. He definitely wasn't the Messiah. And many people were killed. And there, just from Acts there, we had another couple of examples of false messiahs, of people who came, who claimed to be the big thing, the answer sent from God, and they weren't. Now, Christians attach so much meaning to the death of Jesus. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God. We we make all kinds of claims about what this death means for us. But how do we know that he wasn't just another dead false messiah? See, the resurrection, which we celebrate today and every day, is essential to the Christian faith because it confirms who he is. Like that ID card confirms that my husband works for the NHS. The resurrection is like the yes, amen from heaven to everything that Jesus said about who he was but also to all the things that Jesus said about the death he was going to die and what it was going to mean for the rest of us. Jesus claimed to be the chosen one of God. All the others, they're dead. But not this one. This one was raised by God. So we don't just celebrate the resurrection every year on this one day when there are Easter eggs given out. As Christians, we should celebrate the resurrection every day because we should live in the light of the resurrection every day. And just to wind up this part, the resurrection wasn't only the thing that confirmed Jesus' identity. Jesus actually, in some way, claimed that the resurrection was his identity. So earlier on in his life, there's a really amazing story about another resurrection of a guy called Lazarus. And Lazarus was the brother of some really good friends of Jesus. He was a friend of Jesus himself and he died. And Jesus went to the place where he had lived and the place where he was buried and met with his family. And it's an amazing story. If you haven't read it, then I would really encourage you to read it. There's a lot of emotion in it, a lot of reality of grief and loss. And Jesus talks with Lazarus's grieving sister, Mary. And he asks her, Mary, do you believe in the resurrection? And Mary answers him and talks about, you know, the resurrection one day. Yes, I I believe that one day all the dead will be raised by God. But in verse 25 of John 11, this is what Jesus says to her. So she says she believes in the resurrection. She says she believes in this day that will come one day when all are raised. But Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus is the resurrection. Because the resurrection that we celebrate today is not just something that happened to Jesus in that garden. But it's something that 
God is offering to all of us. So in a moment, my friend Afua, who's in my life group, is going to share with you something of what God has done in her life. But I just want to recap what we talked about up till now. So we talked about how the resurrection is like a confirmation of all of the huge, bold claims that Jesus had made about his identity and about his mission. If we doubt that the cross was enough, then the resurrection is a confirmation that it is, that death has been defeated. And I've, I've kind of skimmed and done a whistle stop tour today of the gospels and some of the things that they say about who Jesus was and what he did. And maybe some of you watching are thinking, well, I don't know if I can trust those stories. I don't know who wrote them or I don't know if I can trust those people. I do just want to recommend a book to you that I've been reading recently. Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter J. Williams. I don't get any commission if you buy the book. But it's a very good book, a very helpful book that goes over a lot of the evidence for why the gospel accounts are reliable. And I would really recommend if you found some of what I've said today challenging and intriguing, and if you really want to wrestle intellectually with the evidence for the things I've been saying today, then I'd really recommend this book or one of us from the church team would love to talk to you more. Over to Afwa. Hello everyone and happy Easter to us all on this very special Sunday. As some of you may know, my name is Ifwa and I have been with our TACC family for the past six and a half months. Over this time, I have been greatly blessed and inspired by your love for God and your passion to see souls one for him. The Lord is so good and he's done so much for me, I cannot tell it all. If I had 10,000 thanks, it still won't be enough to thank him. In 2017, I applied for an internship with Bank of America and I went through the process, did all the interviews, the assessment centres, all that you can imagine comes with all this. And I got to the final stage, to the final interview. I awaited the final confirmation that I had got the job, but I got an email that said, we're sorry, you weren't selected. I was sad, but I did not give up hope. About a few weeks after that, I got a call, a Bank of America call to say that they had another role in the US. If I was interested, I could just interview for it. I interviewed for that role and I got it by the grace of God. I had to then apply for a visa because I'm a Ghanaian living in Ghana and I needed a work permit to be able to do this internship. I started the visa application process and along the line, the lawyers who were handling the process realised that I did not completely meet the requirement for the particular visa category they were putting me on. And so what happened was that for about a few weeks, they did not communicate to me, they did not tell me anything. It was the dark age. I did not know what was happening. They did not tell me anything. It was a really trying moment. I was always praying, always asking God if this would actually be. So by and by, Bank of America called me again and they said, this is what's happening. Unfortunately, we are not able to get you a visa to work in the US. So are you happy for us to transfer your contract from the US to London? And I said, yes, I am happy to have that happen. Um, I'm happy to work for Bank of America anywhere in the world because it's a great opportunity and I was really looking forward to it. My visa application started for London or for the UK. I went through that, got my visa, came in for the internship and to be honest, those 10 weeks were the most amazing, most trying, most anxious time of my life because the whole idea of the internship was that 
it was to be an interview process. So instead of having a less than 30 minutes um, interview, this was to be a 10 week interview where they get to choose people for full time roles. Again, I saw the hand of God favor me and bless me because amongst other people, I realized that God gave me the opportunity, God blessed me and he gave me the chance to have this internship turn into a full-time role. I was handed that contract for a full-time role and then I was to come into the job this year, I mean last year, 2019. Between the time when I was supposed to come back for the full-time role, I was in Ghana and decided to travel to Kenya for some volunteering work. I was on the Ethiopian airline flight going into Kenya and coming back to Ghana and going back to Ghana, I mean. I'm sure many of you heard about the plane crash that happened um, on 10th March. And um, I can't but thank God because I realised I, I could have been on that flight. The timing is just really close to the time when I travelled to Kenya. So I just want to thank God that on many frontiers protected me or many frontiers blessed me or many frontiers chosen me and I'm so grateful for that. This Easter has given me the opportunity to think about God and Jesus' sacrifice and coming to die. I'm reminded of the beautiful exchange where Jesus on the cross took my sin and gave me his righteousness and for that I am so grateful. I hope that you have a blessed Easter and stay blessed. Gardens, eh? A lot of us are really wishing we had one right now. I've got a little plant here for you to look at while I talk. If all this talk of gardens is a bit torturous for you, wouldn't it be great to have a place where the kids could run around and burn off that energy? To have a place where you could lie on the cool grass, a place where you could sit under the trees and watch the birds, a place where you could have an encounter with eternity. What? Today, in the rest of our time, I want to think about three gardens where there was an encounter with eternity, an encounter between humanity and God. We're going to think about how the resurrection impacts us, what it means for us. And to do that, we're going to look at three gardens that are talked about in our Bibles. So kicking off, Genesis 3, do you know the name of the garden? It's the Garden of Eden, the garden of God's perfect creation, the garden where he gave humanity our task to steward the earth, to be fruitful, and the garden where we rebelled. It's the place where we effectively said to God, not your will, but mine. The garden of rebellion. And it's really interesting as we read that tragic, terrible story, the tragedy that began all tragedies. We read of how quickly blame entered the world. In verse 12 of Genesis 3, God's asked Adam, what's happened? What's gone on? And Adam says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. He's blaming the woman, Eve, and he's also blaming God. Did you notice that? The woman you put here with me. Sin enters the world and with it comes blame. 
trying to shift responsibility onto everyone else and God. It's a really sad story. There's a tiny note of grace. In verse 21, we read that God gave them a way to cover themselves. It's almost like a foretaste of what was to come, God providing covering for shame. But really, everything else in this story is a tragedy. It's a really terrible encounter in a garden. I want to flick forward to another garden with a name. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the place where Jesus prayed on the night that he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion. If Eden is the Garden of Rebellion, then Gethsemane is the Garden of Obedience. On that night, Matthew tells us in chapter 26, verse 39, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So if in Eden, humanity said to God, my will, not yours. In Gethsemane, Jesus says, your will, not mine. And he did that knowing what was ahead of him, knowing what was to come, knowing the wrath that was going to fall on him. He did it willingly. He submitted. Not rebellion, but obedience. And unlike Adam, who looks to blame everyone else around him and God for what's happened, actually in John's account of the Garden of Gethsemane, There's just one line that really spoke to me when I read it last week. They come to arrest Jesus. They confirm that he is indeed the guy they're looking for. And then when they've really got that clear, this is what Jesus says. So they've asked, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And in John 18, verse 8, Jesus says, I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. Rebellion versus obedience, blame versus saving others. And of course, Jesus in some ways saved the disciples physically at that time by saying, don't don't take them, take me. But actually what began that night in that garden was the salvation of all of us, was him saying, take me, not them, as he went to the cross. Two very different garden encounters. Jesus, like a second Adam, facing the same challenge. Would he put his will first or the will of the Father? And Jesus made the right decision and he put the will of the Father first. And the reason that I'm looking at gardens this morning is because the resurrection that I talked about earlier, the resurrection that we particularly focus on today, it also took place in a garden. There was an encounter with eternity. History changed in a garden. It's really interesting that Mary went there and we're told that she went very early in the morning. It wasn't even light yet. And she goes and the tomb is empty. She's frantic. She runs off. Later on, she comes back. And then there's this crazy little moment where she sees a man and she asks him, oh, I'm looking for the Lord. Do you know where he is? And She thought he was the gardener. Maybe because it was dark, 
Maybe her eyes were filled with tears. In her distress, she didn't recognise him. And then verse 16 tells us that he said to her, Mary. And as he said her name, she suddenly, she knew, she recognised him. It was him. He is risen. She knew. So we had the garden of rebellion, the garden of obedience, and now here is the garden of resolution. All those things that had begun with our rebellion, because of what Jesus did, because of that decision that he made in the garden of Gethsemane to surrender to the will of the Father out of love for us and love for the Father, because of that, And then because of the resurrection, death is defeated. It's the garden of resolution. So my question for you now is which garden do you identify with? Do you feel like you're in the garden of Eden? Are you looking at the choices before you and are you saying, my will, not yours, God? Are you in the garden of Gethsemane? I hope that you didn't answer yes to that second one because you don't have to do what Jesus did. I do believe that we can pray like Jesus prayed and I believe that that's what he wants us to do. We know that one of the lines in the Lord's Prayer is your kingdom come, your will be done. So praying for the will of God and putting that above our own will, I do think that that's something that God wants us to do. But none of us is called to face what Jesus faced in that garden. None of us is called to look into that abyss. None of us is called to look ahead and see abandonment by the Father, to see that full wrath being poured out. None of us is called to look at that and to say yes to it because it's been done for us by Jesus. All of us have done Eden. All of us have made that decision to put our will first. None of us has to do Gethsemane. But all of us are invited to live in that third garden, to live in that garden of the resurrection. So I want to leave you with that question. Which garden are you in?